about today and next week. I really want to talk about I really want to talk about permutations of mindfulness. I don't think I can do it in one day, so I think I'm going to plan to do this in two, and we'll see how it works. I especially thought about this because I was teaching uh, over the weekend with Sukhna Rinpoche from the Tibetan tradition, Norman Fisher, who's a Zen teacher, and myself. And the question was, what does Buddhism have to teach? What Buddhist wisdom for troubled times. So I thought that I should, uh, I thought that Buddhist wisdom is Buddhist wisdom and it's transparochial wisdom. Uh, it's not specific to this, uh, to the lineage in which I studied and teach, to this Theravada lineage. But I, that I should teach about what is the wisdom and also talk, teach particularly about what are the tools in this tradition for accessing that wisdom. So I wanted to start just thinking about that point about the stories of the three traditions and how Tibetan Buddhism started and how Zen Buddhism started are all different. And they do indeed appear to be different in form and sometimes in technique. But and as well as apart from Buddhism, other religions seem to be certainly a different in form and in technique. But here is um, this book. This book is called uh, "Jesus Was a Liberal," and um, it's a it's a very nice book. It's written by Scott Scott McLennan, who's a friend of mine among other things. But he's also the dean of religious studies at Stanford, and. Um, uh, committed, um, he's a committed Christian, and this is a story of his personal religious life, his coming to terms with the fact that um, he could say, along with Alan Jones, who's the dean of Grace Cathedral, I don't believe the story, but I am a believer. I would think about him as a modern theologian who was able to say there's a story that comes along with this religion, and there are the teachings of the religion. And that there's a way of keeping the story because it's the container that brings the teachings from one generation to the next. But it's the teachings that are the, the, the heart of it, literally and figuratively. And he's talking about, uh, uh, this is a, 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 a little part called uh, the, ma the Master Story. Michael Goldberg, in his 1982 book, Theology and Narrative, explains that master stories, the master stories of great religious traditions like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, quote, reflect the primary structure of existence, make basic claims about the truth of that existence, and display the ways whereby such existence may be fundamentally affected and transformed. Christianity was born and developed in relation to a particular master story about Jesus, and Christians have continued to live within that story, finding their sense of identity, their inspiration, and their moral compass through this particular narrative. I think we could read that last, chap that last paragraph over and say, Buddhism was born and developed in relation to a particular master story about the Buddha 
And Buddhists have continued to live within that story, finding their sense of identity, their inspiration, and their moral compass through this particular narrative. That there have been, over the history of the world, wisdom teachers born in each of the great lineages of religious tradition. And it's, it is by studying their lives and their teachings that we're able to say this, uh, this religious teaching has to do with existence, the meaning of it, how, we, how human beings relate to it, how we live in it. The Buddha would have said as his teaching, um, well, I'm going to start from another way of saying that. What, how I was supposed to start on Friday night of this teaching and how everybody was supposed to start on Friday night was uh, with a 10-minute introduction to the whole topic that we were going to discuss, Buddhist wisdom for difficult times, with all three of us having a 10-minute dharmet and uh, with a narrator. And this is particularly because on uh, Saturday morning, I was going to teach, and Saturday afternoon, Norman would teach. Sunday morning, Sakni Rinpoche would teach. Sunday afternoon, we'd have a panel discussion with all of us and the participants. But because, among other things, they wouldn't hear Norman or Sakni until well into the conference, to hear all of us from the beginning and to see the terrain that we were laying out to, to, uh, to work within. The uh, uh, injunction, the mandate we were each given, was talk for 10 minutes, during which time give the pith instruction of your lineage. So it's, it's not that easy, because you keep thinking about pith, okay. Uh, <laughs> in 10 minutes, I, and we all, we all said about that. I said, you know, I, my usual teaching venue is I have an hour at least to say what I want to say, so I can start and I can develop it. You know, the people who are used to being in the sermon get 12 minutes maximum for the sermon every Saturday or Sunday. But I'm not used to a 12-minute maximum. I'm used to developing and thinking it over. Maybe I come out with another final important, maybe what ends up being the most important was not what I thought was the most important, but I discovered it on the way. So 10 minutes. And what I ended up doing was I... Um, I, I related pith, pith uh, uh, instruction to the, uh, literally in the uh, Zen tradition where um, teachers are often associated with their final words before they die and their last breath, as opposed to say, their deepest understanding. And I had heard a story a long time ago. I have a book of death sayings of famous Zen uh, masters, and they're quite interesting. But uh, this woman's death saying is not in any particular book. She was a teacher of the teacher of a friend of mine. I don't remember what her name was. But I remember that she is said to have said with her expiring breath, thank you very much, I have no complaints. <laughs> and I like that very much as a pith instruction. Because I, it, it seems to me, first of all, I would like to be able to make that statement while dying. Thank you very much. I have no complaints. 
Uh, I'd like to have that as my dying statement. I'd like to have that as my living statement on any given day, at least as much, maybe more. Thank you very much. I have no complaints. Uh, for, a meaning not that I had no, I had uh, not meaning that I had had a life that had never been disappointing, because you can't have a life that had never been disappointing. It can't happen like that. It's not possible. But to have a life in which I had a mind which could, in any moment, think, this wasn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. So I guess the big plan, the karma that made this, is way bigger than what I would have wished. I would have wished it otherwise. From the mundane to the enormous, I would have wished that it uh, uh, wasn't raining today because I had planned to ride my bike. To uh, I would have wished to have fallen in love with someone and stayed in a committed relationship forever. Or I would have wished to live longer and not have my life cut short by whatever it is is ending it now or whatever. I mean, we have all kinds of I would have wished, but it wasn't like that. But to be able to have all the times that I, I would have wished other, and I got this, to be able to have firmly clear in my mind, it isn't what I wanted, it is other, but it's other because of so many myriad things that that's the only thing it could be. The karma of this moment is that way. It's not what I wanted, but I'm not in charge. And not have that be an awful discovery. I mean, I, I, I'm... You know, I'm touched sometimes when people say I'm the type of person who likes to be completely in charge of my life, as if we are, you know, that, um, or could be, but every time we cross a street, you know, let alone, I used to think every time we get into an airplane or every time we get into an automobile, but every time we cross a street, every time we get into a shower, people slip in showers and injure themselves gravely for the whole rest of their life. It's a very tricky thing. <laughs> it comes down to the nonsense with my family. <laughs> One of my daughters has the habit of saying, I, I, you know, I need to hang up now. I'm late for work and I have to hop into the shower. And I said, don't hop in the shower. <laughs> Showers are dangerous. You could slip. <laughs> and of course, she's going to hop in the shower. It's a figure of speech. But you know, that when you think about it, everything is, everything is precarious. I'll see you later is um, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, um, it's a risk. Wait, what, what do you call it? It's an actuarial um, <laughs> probability. I'll see you next week. But it's not for sure. How about just being a prayer? Huh? A prayer. I'll see you next week. I'll see you later. Yeah. You know, we should, and people often say, I'll see you with God's help next week, you know. Or, God willing, I'll see you next week. Uh, and people who don't feel like saying God willing, they say cosmos willing, karma willing, whatever willing. But at least to let you know that they're, not, they're sure that it doesn't entirely depend on what I have in mind. You don't know what's going to happen in between. And that kind of a mind in which wisdom is so ins installed doesn't get mad at what happens. It gets surprised. It gets dismayed. Whoa, this wasn't what happened. But... I guess this is the way it is. I can't have it otherwise. When I hear about people who are better at that than I am, I'm tremendously inspired because then it means I could get better at it than I am. So when I hear about somebody who can die and say, you know, wasn't, you know, thank you very much. I have no complaints. This person knows two things at least. 
she knows three things. First of all, that in thanking, there's since the the since thanking is an outward connecting response, it means in this moment I am connected to you in love. Thank you means I'm touching you with love. It's a gracious, it's a connection. It means I die, un, I die connected, not unconnected. Thank you very much. I have no complaints means I am aware that I'm not in charge, so there's no point in complaining. There's no complaint department in this world. No complaint department. I have no complaints. It also, I think, carries the wisdom I know that complaining, since there is no complaint department that's going to be responsive to my personal complaints, if I complain, my mind will end up embittered. So it's really very profound wisdom to be able to say that. I always think about that little part in, uh, oh, what's his name, Adam Gopnik's book, Through the Children's Gate, where he's talking about his... Um, seven-year-old child who had imaginary playmates. And one of her playmates, as she's recounting the story of them, she said, oh, that one died. I said, well, how did the, that person die? Said, he died of bitterosity. <laughs> so I have that in mind. I don't want to die of bitterosity. Uh, when, I don't want to die of bitterosity before I not die at my natural death. And when I die my natural death, I don't want it to be of bitterosity either. I want it to be in gratitude. So you don't know. And so the point of saying that whole thing, is, and I did teach something like that, not, not exactly what I just told you, but I, I did start with, thank you very much, I have no complaints. I talked about um, the pith instruction of the Buddha being the uh, two last sentences of the uh, uh, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is presumably the last sermon that he preached in his life. And the last two sentences are transient, are all conditioned things, uh, move into the future with confidence. And I found them, at this, I, used to, I said, you know, it used to be I taught that <coughs> transient are all conditioned things. It's a, it's a fancy way of saying everything is impermanent, nothing lasts. I said, I used to teach that in terms of helping people, not in the moment, because in the moment that something dreadful happens to you, if you say this too shall pass, that's, very un, that's very, usually not successful intervention. Because in the moment that people are intensely grieved, saying this, this too shall pass, makes little of their grief or gives the impression that you don't get it, how deeply grieved they are. To them, it doesn't seem like it'll pass. People have actually said to me, I would never say that, when I talk about things passing and they talk about a particular grief in their life and they say, I am going to pass before this passes. And sometimes I really think that. Uh, sometimes I think that does happen. But I think what does happen, I don't say this either to somebody in the middle of a grief, is that in the middle of a grief, it waxes and wanes and waxes and wanes. You have, uh, you have uh, periods in which the grief is overwhelming and there's nothing else and you're just taken away by it. And then by and by you feel hungry and you fix a sandwich. You know, so 
in between, there's a little bit of a respite where the body says, now I need to eat, or now I need to sleep, or now I need to take a shower. And then you get another wave of grief. So the, the intensity of the grief waxes and wanes and waxes and wanes. And in, in many people, probably most people, even after a grief, a tremendous grief, time passes and other things happen. And the grief doesn't get erased for good and all, but doesn't, isn't as intense. So I used to teach that uh, transient are all conditioned things line more as a description of impermanence. But I, I've begun to teach it more, not, not as impermanence, but as impermanence and also as contingency, also as the interconnectedness of things. Things change all the time. As a matter of fact, there's nothing but change. There's nothing but change. It's change and change and change. And we have the sense of now this. Now, but as soon as it's this, it's on the way to being something else. And things. everything is always in a state of change. And the change is happening because of other things happening, because of contingency that we grow and get older and uh, our bodies change inside just because they're all on their own mechanism. They have... Um, clocks that tell them what to do when, all of a sudden, here you are going along, minding your business, and all of a sudden your gallbladder says, well, I've had enough for now, and, uh, or uh, whatever it is that uh, regulates your, uh, uh, your pancreas says, you know, finished with that. Isn't that what does um, diabetes? Yeah. Pancreas says, finished with that insulin business. Don't want to do that anymore. Okay, now you're on your own. You know, that, and you don't know when. You don't know whether tomorrow is going to be the day for your pancreas to say, okay, I'm finished now for this lifetime. Or your aortic valve or anything else. We go along. And changes are always happening. It's like uh, uh, women my age these days we compare who's getting shorter faster, you know? <laughs> that, uh, and say, they say, you're pretty short, how tall are you? And there's people that, well, I say I used to be 5'2 at my zenith, but, you know, <laughs> past 5'1 now, and, and I can't go much more, you know, that, you know, I have to have good posture, but even so, you know, it's, it's, but, it, but it's going all the time. Change is happening in very minute ways. You don't see it happening, but, but it's all change. And it's all change contingent on zillions of other things happening. And mostly that's happening things, I mean, we're fortunate. I mean, I don't have to do anything about digesting my breakfast. That happens all by itself, contingent on the fact that all my enzyme systems, or mostly all of them still work, and those that have to do with digestion still work. But really, that we get up in the morning and come home at night is contingent on every driver that passes us driving carefully, all the streets we cross, all the highways we drive on, all the things that could befall us, the elevators, the airplanes, whatever, and the aortic valve, everything has to work for us to get back, and it might or it might not. When you think about that, you think, <gasps> and I think either you think, <gasps> what an amazing world this is, I made it home again today, thank goodness for this day, or you think, wow, this is alarming, but you can't be in charge of it all, you can't. You can't watch all this stuff. There's a certain way in which you say, it's out of my hands. And at the same time, it's not completely out of my hands. 
that if, if I live in a certain way, maybe my pancreas marches along a little bit more. Or if I, if I watch what I eat, maybe, uh, and I eat enough calcium, maybe I don't shrink quite as fast. So that I have an input into all of those things, but I'm not in charge. It seems to me that contingency maybe is for me even at this point a, a more remarkable, uh, more transformative, if you can think about, an insight is always transformative, even then, um, then uh, impermanence. Because I, uh, recognizing that everything is so vastly beyond what I can control or what I can even comprehend, to be able to say, you know, it's just amazing this life, that it goes on at all and however long. My friend Susan signs all her emails, stay amazed. If I'm amazed, if I'm amazed, then I stay in a grateful way because, listen, everybody I know came home yesterday. Uh, okay, and it could have been otherwise. I probably told you I have a friend who, um, whose aunt, whose old aunt, lost her faculty of speech and her memory as well. But uh, from all her, from the whole vocabulary that she used to have, she retained two words. And when she had visitors at her assisted living place, she would sit in a chair and nod as if she understood that they were saying. And every once in a while, she would say one of her two words. And the two words were temporarily and unexpectedly. Oh, wow. And when you think about that, everything is temporarily and unexpectedly. So it's kind of like, that could have been her pith instructions too. Who knows? You know, the, the you know the the her relatives like to think it was you know that she had such deep understanding. I so I think what those two last last uh, sentences of the Buddha were that uh, transient are all conditioned things. Is everything is changing according to conditions, uh, incomprehensible to understand. And the last one, strive on, it, it's mostly translated as strive on with diligence. Uh, a friend of mine, Andy Olensky, who's the, a poly scholar, says what it means really is move into the future with confidence. And I like that very much. It means because you could get really paralyzed by the, it's out of my control. You know, you never know. Um, I had a... Um, a, a cartoon on my refrigerator for the longest time. Just it, it tickled me a lot. You see a man walking down a city street, high skyscrapers, and he's reading what's clearly his lab report that he's just gotten from his doctor. And it says cholesterol normal, blood pressure normal, blood sugar normal, everything normal, 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 normal. He's got a big smile on his face. And there's this huge safe that's just fallen out of an office window that's in midair crashing down. So, you, you see, so, you know, you can't be in charge of everything. You know, if plane falls down, safe lands on you, it doesn't matter what your blood pressure is. It's, and, to, and to somehow live in that sort of razor's edge of, you don't know, and still say, it's an amazing world to stay amazed in. Look at it, it's beautiful. And we could lose everything that's dear to us in a second. And how to keep the mind in a place where it doesn't say, well, that would be all right, but 
That would be what would be then, but then is then. It didn't happen yet. Now is now. Move confidently into the future. The future at this moment is the next second. You know, how do I know what, you know, child calls and says, I'm taking a year off from school. And you say, a year off from school? Don't take a year off from school. You tried so hard to get into that school. You never know. You won't get it. Who knows what's good, you know? Really? Okay. You know, that's not one of the things that's facing me right now, but <laughs> so they're facing a friend of mine who did it very coolly. He said, oh, okay. I said, whoa, you did that great. She said, well, what, what was the alternative, you know? What's the alternative? But I really want to say that the, uh, in between, uh, uh, thank you very much, I have no complaints, and arriving there from here is some practice that keeps the mind clear enough so that you know you're, it's out of control, it's all contingent, it's all temporal. Suffering in the mind is not being able to continue with the truth of contingency and temporality because things are always changing and we have to, we're like on shifting sands and the ability to live happily requires that we keep on shifting. Hmm, I didn't mean to do this, but okay, this is going to require that. I didn't mean, I didn't expect it to be like this. Hmm, little course correction, okay. Didn't expect this, didn't expect that little course correction. I'm sure I told you about my friend, a practitioner here, whose entire life's savings was lost when the Bernie Madoff scheme was um, revealed. So this leaves her with a big, whoa, I didn't expect this. What should I do now? And needing to figure it out. And which she's doing a very wonderful job. Uh, not that she's got to figure it out. She said, this is an awesome thing to have to figure out. She said, but I am not, at least I am not further confused by anger. I have enough clarity not to have gotten angry. I think to myself, I have enough trouble in my mind without getting mad. Besides, she said, and this is actually the very clear piece of Dharma, she said, who would I get mad at? I could get mad at him, but he's not like a regular person, you know. It's not like with malice of forethought. It's get, you don't get mad at a tiger who jumps out of a cage and eats a few people. You know, it's what tigers do. It's not like a regular person. I, I think that's true. And so besides, I, maybe I should get mad at his associates who might have known and didn't report him. Maybe I should be mad at the Securities and Exchange Commission for not exerting enough oversight. Maybe I should be mad at um, my friends who didn't urge me hard enough not to put all my eggs in one basket. Maybe I should be mad at myself for not listening to my friends who told me, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Maybe I should be mad at the culture that teaches or that allows people to make money from money and makes this whole culture of greed. Maybe I should be mad at myself that I overlooked my friend's advice because my money was on paper going up, 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 and I liked the way it was going up, up, up. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe it doesn't matter whose fault it is. Maybe what it matters is that it happened, and now I have to do something about it, and it doesn't do me any good at all to confuse my mind with anger. I have enough trouble without that. 
That would be using mindfulness. Say, what's really happening? Things have changed according to conditions, so that's already happened. What should I do now? In teachings of um, uh, uh, the uh, of of mindful awareness, there's uh, the sequel teaching on clear comprehension of purpose, and the understanding is that when mindfulness is achieved, uh, that clear comprehension of purpose, what should I do now, is really part of it. It's not just mindful. Okay, see what's going on now. Okay, see what's going on. But okay, this might work. That might work. I'll do this. I'll do that. I won't do this. This won't work. So that it's not a passive resting in the moment. I, when I teach about mindfulness, I teach people that mindfulness, my, my definition of it, is really deeply knowing what's happening, what's the truth of this moment, what's happening in here, uh, how do I feel, what's happening out there in, in my family, in my immediate situation where things are complicated, what's happening in the planet, what's happening wherever I'm paying attention, there's something happening. What's happening? What's my mind's response to what's happening? What's it doing with that? And with some clarity, what would be a wise response? And really the moment of mindfulness is a moment of balanced understanding. Um, in the Mindfulness Sutta, be a nice place to read you the beginning of the teaching of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Because it's got really uh, two beautiful lines that are nice to read. Where is it? Nice line. Where is it? Ah, here it's right, it's in the beginning. Two sentences. First sentence, there is this one way. He's teaching this to uh, uh, monks in, uh, in a certain market town. And he says, there is, monks, this one way to the purification of beings for the overcoming of sorrow and distress for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of nirvana, nirvana. That is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, a monk abides contemplating body as body, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. And then he goes on, Abiding, contemplating the body, contemplating feelings, contemplating mind objects, and contemplating mind, which I want us to talk about today and next week as well. But they each have the phrase, having put, it, put aside hankering and fretting for the world. And hankering is such a, it's, it's, a, it's a really, you know, who knows what, and it, what is hankering? Tell me what's hankering. What does it mean? It's something out of desire. It's, it's, it's like an old word, like I have a yen for. You remember that? I have a yen for hankering. I'm hankering for a something. It's wanting something. So hankering is greed and desire. 
uh, and fretting for the world means uh, worrying it or some sort of pushing away, some sort of um, antagonistic or adversarial feeling. So here comes the feeling, it says, here is the monk or the person. When uh, my friend Jack translated this, uh, he translated he translates he translates it as instead of this uh, there is this one way O monks there is a very good way O friends which makes it a little bit softer and wider this is a very good way O friends to come to the end of suffering so you and the and the way is to be able to uh, see one's experience one as it manifests in the breath, in feelings that come up, in the mind, the different mind states that are present, and really the different patterns of mind that, that present themselves, and to see what's happening without hankering and fretting for the world means free of greed and aversion in that moment, not pushing and pulling, not needing more, not pushing it away, which means to really fully see what's happening, having, putting aside, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. I actually think about that phrase a lot. I, I thought I'd uh, maybe talk to Andy Olensky a little bit about it because I thought in a way, if a person had already, already put away fretting and hankering for the world, they'd already be finished. You know, that it would be the end of the practice, not the beginning of the practice. So maybe, maybe to give that as an instruction, is to say, manifest the end until it manifests. You know, so sort of fake it until you make it is what they say in AA. But you know, you know that the but but maybe that's actually it. You start to do it as if you're there, and you're there a little bit, and then more and more you get to be nearer to that. So that's actually the line that I wanted to tell you about having put aside hankering and fretting for the world, but. That's my sense of mindfulness. And sometimes, I wanted to talk, this will be the last thing I'll say today and then we'll continue it last week. I taught over the weekend and I want to teach in these two times, two times, three permutations of mindfulness. When we sat before, I said, let's just sit here and feel the breath coming in and out of the body and the body changing as the breath comes in and out of it, which really is the first foundation of mindfulness and uh, of those four. And truth, in truth, we're not really sitting here paying attention to that as much as we're seeing what happens when we try to pay attention to that. What do you learn? So you probably learned as you tried to pay attention to that that it's hard to stay focused, that we are attentive and attentive and attentive and we're suddenly making a grocery list in the middle of the attention for on the way home, I'll pick up such and such. And they say, well, wait a minute, I wasn't supposed to be there. I'm supposed to be here attentive. So, okay, here I am, attentive, attentive, attentive. Oh, I forgot to call back so-and-so, and they phoned me. So the mind goes a little bit in the forwards investigating the future. It has a little bit of remorse about what it didn't do right. It's just the functions of the mind. Those are not, none of them... Um, naughty things for the mind to do. It's, I mean, it's extraordinary to have a mind. It can keep laundry lists, it can keep shopping lists, it can keep remorse lists. If, for instance, and it's fine, those are all very functional for getting a life done. Uh, 
In fact, actually, I often have, when, I, when I'm sitting on a retreat, I often have a notebook right next to me. Even though I don't keep extensive journaling and we tell people don't do journaling, but I remember so many things that I need to do in my life that I have all, that I said, that I didn't call that one. Okay, when I finish, I'll call this one. But it, it just really, it's like um, having a Google moral inventory that goes into action when you sit quietly and says, well, you're not busy up there. I might as well let you know what, what jobs you haven't, you haven't figured out in the last period of time. So you don't have to say, now I'm going to do a searching moral inventory because your mind does it for itself. I mean, I really love that. I, th I mean, sometimes I say, it's enough for today. Could you wait? But, uh, but I think that's actually what makes us essentially, that's one of the most wonderful things about being a human being is that we don't have to have that installed. It comes as a piece of apparatus with the machine when you get it. It's already in there. It's part of the basic package, if we're lucky. If we're lucky, not for everybody. I think if I had to carry that, um, if I was to carry that analogy further, um, <laughs> I'm hesitating because my friend and my teacher, Rabbi Zalman Shachter, would say, don't do that, Sylvia. Don't call it a car. Don't call it a machine. Call it an organism. It's alive. <laughs> Whatever it is, when we get it, uh, it comes mostly, I think, installed with moral inventory machine, but probably not activated until we get into someone's possession. And then they activate it by how they behave with us in the first crucial months and years of our lives. I think we have nascent moral inventory machines and that they depend on a loving bond having been established in early months and years with our caregiving people to go into action. Not everybody ends up with their moral inventory machine equally functional. Um, there's a word for that now that they're talking about in, uh, in, in gene research. I have to think about, I'll have to remember the name of the gene that sometimes people have a certain gene, animals they're doing this research on, that have a certain kind of gene. And the gene, when it's not activated, doesn't manifest. I, but I, before I tell you about it, I want to make sure I have all the facts right. But one of the, the three forms of mindfulness that I want for us to talk about, it's going to work out now perfectly. Because today we started with mindfulness of the breath and the body. Not only to see how that is and to see that it's easy to be distracted, but also if we could stay with it, it would be potentially a way of discovering that things do come and go, that they are impermanent, that just by paying attention to the body and the way it functions, breaths come and go. A half hour comes and goes. Begin to really have a direct intuition of the impermanence of everything and the contingencies of things. If we're feeling good uh, without having a cold or an allergy or asthma, we breathe. And the breathing is not a complication. If it were otherwise, if we had a cold, it wouldn't be so pleasant. And so that what for most people is pleasant for other people might be unpleasant. Might discover um, that while you're sitting in this pleasant experience, some recollection of something you didn't do comes up into your mind. 
and then it, uh, it, the sensation is that it grabs hold of your mind and, uh, uh, and um, makes it constricted or tight. The mind um, contracts around it. In the third foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha talks about mind is contracted, mind is relaxed. Contracted mind is unpleasant. So you might actually have discovered that in the middle of presumed pleasance, not only presumed, but it's pleasant here. It's quiet, it's nice amongst friends. The mind is relaxed. And then suddenly, contingent on a thought arising, the mind contracts and the experience is unpleasant. Begin to see how pleasant and unpleasant come and go. The, our lives are not different in the meantime. That's just a thought. But the way thoughts condition how we feel, and then how we feel conditions how we think and how we plan. It's a great deal to be learned just to stay with the breath. And next week, we'll try staying with all the different of the four foundations of mindfulness. But also to put in the particular mindfulness that we will add next week, which is mindfulness of uh, really moral inventory, of having given the mind the uh, instructions. I have these intentions to not, uh, not abuse or harm in any way. And then watch the mind tell back. You know, remember the day before yesterday you did this or that or the other? And uh, it's, it's usually people discover that they remember in a kind of a um, held in comfort, sweet way, so they don't feel overwhelmed by it or terrified by it. You know, just, okay, I'll take care of that. And it's quite a, a relief. It's not, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not an unpleasant experience. For me, it's a pleasant experience because it reminds me, and usually all of us who are there, that we're fundamentally very good people. And it hurts us when we do something that's not consistent with what our highest motivation is. So mindfulness, mindfulness of moral inventory. And the third mindfulness which I taught about in the weekend, which I think is specific to human beings, is the ability of mindfulness of mind states, particularly the presence or absence of goodwill, and that it's possible for human beings to cultivate intentionally a mind that rests more and more inclined towards goodwill, inclined towards wishing well, and having the habit of blessing, and that that's really a cultivatable habit. And that, uh, you know, at, at first hearing, it sounds like it's uh, for the benefit of other people that you might go around and be tolerant or have the benefit of the doubt or bless them. May they thrive. Even people whose behaviors are difficult for you, may they thrive. And then maybe their behaviors wouldn't be. Not to do it in a coercive way, but in a really, in a, in a way that comes out of compassion for people who are confused but actually to think about a mind that blesses as being the happiest mind in the world because it has no enemies in it. You know, you're living in a world full of people who are blessable that way. Mm-hmm. And it's really the antidote, it's the ultimate antidote to fear. So that's what we'll do. And we, uh, I thought we'd do some of it today, but we are exactly at a good part place to stop because uh, we'll start next week with the, um, with the precepts. So in this last moment together, just to think about um, uh, 
donating, all, making a gift of whatever merit we accrued from being together and studying and listening and being a community to each other and praying community for each of our challenges in our life. Whatever merit we accrue to give away, offer for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.